I love Terry's introductions. <laughs> they, they remind me of that Latin tag, I'm sure it's Horatian, Ars Longa, Curriculum Vitae Brevis. <laughs> Mine, at least. Well, everything so far withstanding, uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, give another lecture at Rare Book School, one very different from the one I gave two years ago in New York. Um, uh, and I also want to say that it's a great pleasure to be Terry's student this week. Uh, having said that, I must also say that I feel a little bit as if uh, I walked into the lion's den for two reasons. Uh, I'm proposing to talk about Piranesi, and I haven't yet graduated from something called book illustration to the year 1880. <laughs> Secondly, I propose to talk about Rossetti, and uh, as you know, this campus is the home to the Rossetti Archive, which some of you heard about last week. Uh, but even given those uh, limitations, my limitations, uh, I think this should be fun because I know that the lion's den has a friendly lion in it. It's a rare book school lion. And uh, I also feel comfortable because I'm going to be talking uh, in a rather exploratory way this evening. What I'm going to say is somewhat tentative. It's somewhat speculative. I'm not going to be reading from the, the book I'm writing right now. I'm going to be talking from some notes that I've made toward a project in the future. And in fact, at the end, I'm not going to end, I'm not going to close with any pronouncements. I'm actually going to ask you to carry a few questions away with you. Now, I have to admit at the very beginning that so far as I know, and except for the fact that their names both end in I, Piranesi and Rossetti have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Nothing that is except to a small handful of us who are interested in the relationships between the visual arts and literature, what I'm going to call encounters between the visual and the verbal in my, in my remarks this evening. I'm not going to try to relate what I say in the first half of my talk to what I say in the second half of my talk. That's for you to do. Uh, I do, however, want to raise two assumptions on which my remarks are based. The first is this. The first is that I'll be talking about two kinds of visual images that I think can be more fully interpreted through recourse to their verbal properties, to their verbal inscribed properties. And secondly, I'm going to attempt to show how the artistic process itself is crucial to our understanding of the objects that the artists finally produce. So I think both Piranesi and Rossetti can be more fully interpreted because of this swerve through the sister arts. Let me begin with Piranesi. And like many people, uh, I wax a little meditative when I think about Piranesi. And so I'm going to begin with an epigraph, an epigraph drawn from John Cheever's journals, which many of you probably read in the New Yorker a few years ago, in which I, I'm happy to say are now safely in the Houghton Library. Here's what Cheever says. Standing in the Pantheon, I am impressed with the dome, but the children are pulling at my coat and asking me to buy them pastry or take them home one of the splendid cats loafing under the portico. Ben, his son, Ben and I walk by the forum, which, with the green grass still growing among the stones, seems to be a double ruin, 
a ruin of antiquity and a monument to the tender sentiments of 18th and 19th century travelers, for we see not only the ghosts of Romans here, but the shades of ladies with parasols and men with beards and little children rolling hoops. In the Colosseum, I tell Ben that Christians were devoured by lions, although I think this is untrue. I'm impressed with the massive outer archways, and yet I am not taken as directly by a sense of the past as I was in a Portsmouth counting house. We strive to feel the presence of Romans, and then we pet a stray cat. Now, my focus is not on the visual illustration of a printed text this evening, but on its opposite in Piranesi. The fate of writing within a book of etched plates and the significance of change itself as that book and its plates move from one edition, issue, and state to another. And I wonder if we can have the lights down in back. And the first slide on the left, please, just the left. Just the left, please. My text is the prima parte di architetture e prospettive, the first part of Architecture and Perspective, published in the Venetian Architects Adopted Rome in 1743. This is the title page. There was no second part, only a prima parte although it was extensively reworked, which is my subject, and combined with other works. This was Piranesi's first independent publication. Both John Wilton Ely and Andrew Robison have pointed out that this is a truly extraordinary collection of prints, showing how quickly and deeply the 23-year-old Piranesi had absorbed and in many ways transcended the graphic and architectural models at his disposal during the early 1740s. I'm going to argue that this book prefigures virtually the rest of Piranesi's career. And I'm going to walk you through it, eliminating only the dedicatory letter addressed to Nicola Jove and the concluding list of plates. So if I could have the first on the right, please. The great statue gallery. First on the right, please. Thank you. That's not the first on the right. Why don't you go back? No. Nope. Keep going back. Keep going back. That's it. The great statue gallery. Let me remind you that these are all imaginary buildings and ruins. They're all imaginary. In his dedication, he talks about the spirit of architecture. He is creating drawings instead of actual buildings because there is no patronage for building at the time. Here you can also see the use of off-center perspective, Shena per angolo, which was drawn from his training in the theater. Next on the right, please. In the dark prison, you see a similar use of perspective and a harbinger of the great Karcheri series. Next on the right, please. In these ruins of antique buildings, you see the introduction of a documentary motif, as in the vedute uh, at the end of the decade. 
a great interest in stonework here, real archaeological work. We also encounter a thematic focus on transience. We find pastoral inquiring figures here, not urban figures from contemporary Rome, which are found in buildings not in ruin, the kind reconstructed by Cheever as he walked with his son through the Roman Forum. We also have someone drawing attention, pointing. What Claude Gandelman, in a recent book, has, has called the gesture of demonstration. In speech act theory, it would be called a perlocutionary gesture. And these are perlocutionary characters, pointing to something that has to be seen. These are Enlightenment successors to the demonstrator of early Renaissance religious painting. In the next slide on the right, an ancient mausoleum. Next on the right, we see Piranesi's use of light and shadow and the play between them, these wonderful architectonic volumes that he's been able to create. This has become my favorite image in the, in the group. And in the next, which is a magnificent bridge, on the right, we see our best example of this Shena per Angelo, the scene constructed through an angle. In the next on the right, in the Corinthian Hall, we have a traditional perspective and we also have some theatrical staging. In the next, which is an ancient Campidoglio, we see the prefiguring of numerous Roman vedute in composition and the silvery handling of the obelisks, the obelisks and the clouds. In the next on the right, which is a composition of stairs, we have a slanted multiple perspective, whereas on the left, if we can have the next one on the left for a change, and the prospect of a royal What is that doing there, I wonder? Well, why don't you try the next one? Well, why don't you go back and see if you can find the one on the left? It seems like both have been moved forward too far. If you move back on the left, several ones, several ones. Back again, back again. And back again. Yes, okay. Um, we have a prospect of a royal courtyard. Uh, here we have a Palladian design that is then repeated, if we look at the right, the new one on the right, in a vestibule of an ancient temple. Next on the right, please. But this time with repetitive diminishing views. In the next one on the right, which is an antique Roman forum, good, we have a reconstruction, per angolo. In the next one on the left, in the Doric atrium, thank you, we have one using Vitruvian perspective. Now, I've walked you through the book. There are two other proleptic elements that should be noted, although I don't have slides. They can be illustrated only through recourse to the third issue of the first edition in 1747, if you're still counting, the creation of wonderfully complex initial letters that take on the properties of buildings and ruins, and the imaginary melange of bones, skulls, and architectural fragments 
that clearly prefigures the four great grotesque later in the decade. Now, two important points can be drawn from the plates we've seen, however. And if you'll give me the next on the left, please. I want you to look at this title page again. Now, if we compare the two images on the screen, the book's first and final plates, one of a ruin and one of a building that is structurally intact, we must remember that both are imaginary scenes and that both are etchings. But Piranesi's creation of the ruin on the left is particularly suited to the etching process, even when it is augmented by engraving, dry point, and scraping, as it is here. For the process of etching, in which the artist draws with a stylus on the copper plate's varnished surface, rather than working with an engraving buren into the copper itself, produces delicate, soft, spidery, even painterly effects. And it's therefore not surprising that in subsequent editions, Piranesi added scenes of ruins and subtracted scenes of imposing edifices that might yet be built. And if you'll, if you'll show the next on the right, please. This is from the second issue. It's a new plate he added later. And you'll see what happened. Now, the second point I want to make is this, that having discovered the affinity between the medium of etching and the representation of ruins, he couldn't leave well enough alone. Many plates were heavily reworked in the next 10 years, and some were still touched up as late as the 1770s, 30 years later. And I'll talk more about that later. Now let me give you an example. If you give me the next on the right, please. I'm showing you now the title page for the second state, the second issue of the Prima Parte, which was published only a few months after the plate you see on your left. And now if you'll give me the, the next on both sides, please, I'm going to give you a detail of each one so you can zoom in a little bit. The entire marble tablet, which itself looks a bit like an engraved copper plate, has been burnished and reworked. We have the addition of Piranesi's election to an artistic society in the plate on the right, but also a different style of lettering that suggests the softness of the etching itself. Now the title page was slightly reworked in a third state, the third through fifth issues, 1747 to 1748, but the changes there, if I may invoke such language, and I think I can in these precincts are accidental rather than substantive. The most significant transformation occurs in the fourth state, the sixth issue of the first edition of the Prima Parte in 1748, five years following the first publication. Could you give me the next on the left, please? And maybe you could give us yeah, a little bit more of it. That looks good. Now, I want to inventory the changes here. The top two-thirds have been completely burnished, rubbed out, and re-etched. The tablet has been re-lettered, and the dedication to Nicola Jobe dropped. 
the spidery characters that began to emerge in a few plates of the first state are now everywhere in the background, in the middle ground, and the central plane of the etching. And the human figures that, so to speak, stand in as part of the architecture in the first three states have thereby been replaced. Now, could you give me the next on the left, which is a detail? We'll have the two details next to each other. The nominal reason for the reconceptualization of the title page was surely to the death of Jobe in 1748. But the changes are so extensive and so unusual, so clearly meant to call attention to themselves, that a number of forces are surely at work here. And this is where my meditation proper begins. The movement from the third to the fourth state of the title page, from the right to the left for you, is a double one. For with the disappearance of writing, or at least of some writing, comes the simultaneous appearance of human figures. Mute spectators who attempt to make sense of the inscription that is at least partially under erasure here. The human presence, in other words, is coterminous with the linguistic absence or diminution. Or to put it the other way round, the disappearance of language as time in the guise of mist or cloud works its effects on marble and on the writing inscribed there, the disappearance of language of a full text points to the need for interpretive gestures, for the gesture of demonstration, and thus serves as an implicit invitation for us to enter the text ourselves. Now, if Piranesi had merely wished to eliminate the dedication, it would have made sense for him to have reworked the inscription so that the entire tablet was filled. By re-etching the lettering and leaving it relatively high on the marble page, however, the artist was clearly emphasizing what was missing, what was incomplete. The figure with the extended arm is gesturing towards Piranesi's original dedicatory gesture. What he points to, however, is the cloud, the natural process that has obscured the writing below. Because he and his companion cannot read, or can no longer read, beneath the swirling mist, his gesture might be paraphrased as, Jobe is no more. I want to suggest, in other words, that the dedicatee's death, that the loss of the builder and collector who had helped to educate and encourage Piranesi during what were still his formative years, had turned the artist's imagination increasingly towards thoughts of mortality, of human decay, that are personal and historical at the same time. Let me summarize this process of decay from a number of intersecting perspectives, chene per angoli, if you will. First, as I've already suggested, there's a fascinating affinity between the stylistic qualities of etched images, their comparative softness of line, and the physical textures of the ruins they represent. Second, and perhaps most obviously, the focus on physical degradation that is the theme of several plates of the Prima Parti and of so many architectural <coughs> ruins later on, is reinforced in this etching by the obscuring mists that hide 
Jobe from us, and, even in the lines that remain, present a threat to the very intelligibility of the past. In the title page of his first book, in other words, Piranesi begins to question the stability of his own exploration of Rome's past. His attempt to inscribe order, legibility, on the past is itself an uncertain enterprise. Third, the process of physical deterioration that we witness among these ruins is analogous to the etching process itself, which proceeds by immersing the varnished and inscribed copper plate in a bath of acid, which then bites away the lines the artist has traced. The role of acid in the printing process has often been associated with the corrosive, biting properties of visual satire. And Barbara Stafford has recently suggested an intriguing analogy between the anatomist's scalpel of the 18th century and the etching needle wielded by Piranesi as he, and I quote her here, applied surgical procedures to turn the still living fabric of architecture inside out. The analogy might work better, perhaps, if Piranesi had been an engraver, literally slicing, cutting, incising beneath the surface of his plate. What I would suggest here is that the process that helped Piranesi to unearth the past was corrosive itself, not merely an antidote to what was lost, but a reenactment of loss, one in which the artist has less control than in the alternative medium of engraving. Much of the softness we value in etching is produced, after all, by the infiltration of acid beneath the varnish that has been applied to the copper plate. Fourth, a copper plate that has been etched is much less durable than one that has been engraved. The mechanical reproduction of the etched image, in which copy follows copy and issue follows issue, eventually works its own ruinous effects on a copper plate that must be reworked so as to offset the graphic loss through printing. The minor accidental changes that Piranesi introduces into some of his plates may be aesthetically justified, but they also betray the fact that the copper plate, like the ruinous surfaces it represents, is itself prey to natural forces. Finally, I want to suggest that the prima parte like so many of the vedute and imaginary compositions, figures the book as ruin in the sense that the very success of its, uh, of its images leads Piranesi to incorporate it within other publications. The opera Varie of 1750, for example, where it loses its own integrity as a codex, just as it is simultaneously disseminated to an increasingly large and international audience. It is thus only a step away in Piranesi's lifetime from the fate of the plates themselves once he died, for prints from his plates have continued to be pulled even into our own century. Perhaps even more analogous, however, is the fate of the books themselves as they have been cut open and the etchings dispersed during the past two centuries. Only a small handful of original copies of the Prima Parte has survived and almost all of them are incomplete. The rest of themselves become fragments, collected and admired by Cheever's 18th and 19th century travelers, as well as, let's be honest about it, by many of us today.
I now want to make a transition from the 18th century to the 19th, from Italy to England, from etchings to paintings, and from black and white to living color, shocking color, I think. But my focus is similar. I'm going to be talking about the play between text and image outside, around, and in the image itself. Now, Rossetti is, in my opinion, one of the three major English poets who were also accomplished, even major painters, Blake and Lawrence being my other two choices. And I'm going to give you an example from a poem entitled The Portrait in order to reintroduce you to Rossetti. And I'm going to balance my reading of two stanzas of this poem by showing you on the left, please, next on the left, just that one, the seashell, which is at Harvard. And I realize that you can't read in the dark, um, but at least some of you have some poems that you can look at later, and perhaps some of you have already had a chance to, to look at them already. Here's the first stanza. This is her picture as she was. It seems a thing to wonder on, as though mine image in the glass should tarry when myself am gone. I gaze until she seems to stir, until mine eyes almost aver that now, even now, the sweet lips part to breathe the words of the sweet heart, and yet the earth is over her. The third stanza introduces the mysticism and tenebrous romanticism of many of the paintings, the role of the speaker as lover, poet, and painter, and the characteristic tension between flesh and spirit, the sublunar and the divine that permeates so many of Rossetti's poems. Now here's the third stanza. In painting her, I shrined her face mid mystic trees, where light falls in hardly at all, a covered place where you might think to find a din of doubtful talk and a live flame wandering, and many a shape whose name not itself knoweth, and old do, and your own footsteps meeting you, and all things going as they came. I particularly admire the paradoxes of this stanza, for they derive directly, I'm sure, from the language of paradox in Wordsworth, but with a different motive, not to transcend the earthly in order to grasp, at least fleetingly, the sublime, but to fuse the two together under the rule of eros and agape. I'm going to show you seven pictures painted at various times in Rossetti's career. I'm not going to pay a great deal of attention to chronology this evening, and I think we'll just run through them fairly quickly. You have the sea spell on the left. On the right, please, you have Veronica Veronese. Next on the left, please, My Lady Greensleeves, also at Harvard. Next on the right, Astarte Syriaca. Next on the left, Venus Verticordia. Next on the right, Proserpine. And the last on the left, the Blessed Damozel. Now, you don't need an art historian to tell you what these remarkable images have in common. 
They're all paintings of women. I won't call them portraits. They're all paintings of women, larger-than-life figures. One was actually described as a giantess at the time, with overblown features, all of them carrying a good deal of allegorical freight. But they're also linked with literary sources and types, with the poetry of Rossetti's own making, and with inscriptions on the back of the canvas, on the frame, or within the painting itself. And I'm going to go back, don't you, um, with the slides, but I'm just going to tell you where these, these poems occur in relationship to the canvases. The sea spell has it on the frame. The poem is on the frame, although I'm not sure you could see it. Uh, for Veronica Veronese, uh, there is Italian prose on the frame. For my Lady Greensleeves, in the early version, there are two lines of poetry and some music. In the later, the entire poem is on the back. For Astarte Syriaca, it's on the frame. For Venus Verdicordia, it's on the frame. Proserpine, location varies from one picture to another. I'm going to limit myself to four examples, but I don't yet know of any other paintings that violate the solution I'm going to offer you. Now, I wonder if you can move back uh, on the right to Astarte Syriaca. No, that was it. You had it. Good. Thank you. Venus Astarte, the Syrian muse which is in the Manchester City Art Gallery. The head is taken from Jane Morris. It's signed and dated 1877. Um, this is a so-called sonnet portrait, which is itself problematical, I think. Each of these paintings has an accompanying sonnet written at the time the painting was created with precisely or almost precisely the same title. Each poem carries the inscription for a picture, always in parentheses. In what sense, for? As a preliminary exercise? A verbal draft? Or conversely, as a compliment that completes the creative process, which is at once visual and verbal? Does the poem, moreover, speak of the subject represented on the canvas? Or does it describe the canvas itself? That is, is it ekphrastic? And is it ekphrastic to the point of speaking for the painting? As I ask these questions, I am paradoxically raising questions of voice. And I want you to listen to voice, to point of view, as I read the poem, which ends by returning to its beginning. Mystery. Lo, between the sun and moon, Astarte of the Syrians, Venus queen, ere Aphrodite was. In silver sheen, her twofold girdle clasps the infinite boon of bliss, whereof the heaven and earth commune. And from her neck's inclining flower stem lean, love-freighted lips and absolute eyes that wean the pulse of hearts to the sphere's dominant tune. 
torch-bearing, her sweet ministers compel all thrones of light beyond the sky and sea, the witnesses of beauty's face to be. That face of love's all-penetrative spell, amulet, talisman, and oracle, betwixt the sun and moon, a mystery. Here I would suggest the Syrian Venus remains as mysterious and as distant in the painting as in the poem. The poem describes the, fig the figure captured in the painting, but does not describe the painting itself. And because of the mysterious exotic nature of the subject, the speaker speaks at a remove, never actually interacting with the goddess herself. The speaker's voice is in the third person. It registers the mysteriousness of the subject without documenting an actual encounter. There is no I, there is no thee here. It is a powerful voice, but compared to other poetic voices, it is impersonal. Note again that the poem is painted on the frame, not on the canvas itself. Now I wonder if we can go back on the left to Venus Verticordia, Thank you. Which I think furnishes a perfect counterexample. Rossetti's heart-turning Venus was completed in 1864 and is now in the Russell Coates Art Gallery in Bournemouth. He began by painting a cook from Portland Place he noticed on the street. This was our six-foot giantess. But he later repainted the face as Alexa Wilding's. There's also a red chalk drawing from 1863 which does in, indeed include the cook's face, which has the title inscribed on the balustrade beneath the goddess and includes the poem in the upper right-hand corner of the drawing. Upper right-hand corner. The painting, however, carries the poem on its frame. Now, you're not seeing it on its frame, and that's because no one in art history is interested in telling you, showing you what the frame looks like. So these paintings are almost never photographed with the frames. Now, why is there this discrepancy between the sketch and the painting? Again, I would ask you to listen to the poem. She hath the apple in her hand for thee, yet almost in her heart would hold it back. She muses with her eyes upon the track of that which in thy spirit they can see. Happily, behold, he is at peace saith she. Alas, the apple for his lips, the dart that follows its brief sweetness to his heart, the wandering of his feet perpetually. It's all in quotation marks. A little space her glance is still and coy. But if she give the fruit that works her spell, those eyes shall flame as for her Phrygian boy. Then shall her bird's strained throat the woe foretell, and her far seas moan as a single shell, and through her dark grove strike the light of Troy. If we compare this poem to Astarte Syriaca, we notice two significant differences. For this Venus is allowed to speak. She is given four lines in the center of the poem, and the poetic utterance that surrounds these lines appears to describe the painting itself. She hath the apple in her hand for thee. Who, moreover, is thee 
the person whose spirit is mentioned in the fourth line of the poem? Is it the reader who is being introduced to the painting? Does Rossetti's poem function as a picture gallery in which all of us become enmeshed? Or does Rossetti have a particular victim in mind, the unhappy recipient of the apple and the dart? Now, the point I wish to make is that the voices and the dramatis personae of this poem are much more complex than in the previous, although later, sonnet. And that while the poem inscribed on the frame symbolically and literally frames and supports the image on the canvas, the emergence of the goddess's own voice suggested to Rossetti, while he was drafting his red chalk sketch, that the poem might appear within the image itself. Ultimately, of course, it did not. And the situation is further complicated by any assumption we might make that the poem precedes the drawing or the painting, especially when we speculate, as I do, that the sonnet appears to respond not just to Venus Verticordia, the goddess of Rossetti's devising, but to the painting as well. Now, if you followed my emerging argument so far, you might well predict my next move, which is to inquire whether there is a sonnet for a picture in which the female subject's voice predominates, and if there is, whether the poem is inscribed within the painting itself. So I ask you to turn to Proserpine, which is the next on the right, please, going Nope, wrong way. Good. And listen to Proserpina. But first, it is perhaps worth hearing how Rossetti, in a letter to a friend, described this painting. The figure represents Proserpine as Empress of Hades. After she was conveyed by Pluto to his realm and became his bride, her mother, Ceres, importuned Jupiter for her return to Earth, and he was prevailed on to consent to this, provided only she had not partaken of any of the fruits of Hades. It was found, however, that she had eaten one grain of a pomegranate, and this enchained her to her new empire and destiny. She is represented, Rossetti goes on, in a gloomy corridor of her palace with a fatal fruit in her hand, as she passes, a gleam strikes on the wall behind her from some inlet suddenly opened, and admitting for a moment the light of the upper world. And she glances furtively towards it, immersed in thought. The incest burner stands beside her as the attribute of a goddess. The ivy branch in the background, a decorative appendage to the sonnet inscribed on the label, may be taken as a symbol of clinging memory. Rossetti's somewhat laconic editor, Virginia Surtees, so laconic that she never tells you what's on the frame, points out that, quote, the model was Mrs. Morris, and the painting one of which the artist was particularly fond, the subject of Proserpine bound to her husband except for a few short periods of escape, would seem to bear an analogy to the circumstance of their own two lives. You realize they were having an affair. Okay. 
Rossetti painted eight versions of this painting, only three of which survive. Uh, one was lost on a train headed for Scotland from Paddington Station. I, sh I show you what is now considered to be the version closest to an original, in quotation marks. It's in a private collection. There is a replica in the Tate and one in the Birmingham City Museum and Art Gallery in which the sonnet appears in English rather than Italian. Here is how it reads in English. Afar away, the light that brings cold cheer unto this wall. One instant and no more admitted at my distant palace door. Afar the flowers of Enna from this drear, dire fruit, which, tasted once, must thrall me here. Afar those skies from this Tartarian gray that chills me. And afar, how far away, the nights that shall be from the days that were. Afar from mine own self I seem, and wing strange ways in thought, and listen for a sign. And still some heart unto some soul doth pine, whose sounds mine inner sense is fain to bring, continually together murmuring, Woe's me for thee, unhappy proserpine. Afar from mine own self I seem, the inverted syntax reinforces the speaker's sense of alienation, the distance between the fruits of Hades and the flowers of Enna, and ultimately the dialectical play between day and night, between momentary light and the Tartarian gray that embalms her. Rossetti pictures her, so to speak, as buried alive, a reminder that the poet buried the only surviving copies of his poetry in the casket of his first wife, and eventually dug them up when he needed to publish them. <laughs> she is so lost to the world, to the world of light above ground, that in her unhappiness, continually together murmuring, she can only speculate that at least one person remembers her. Still some heart unto some soul doth pine and then project another's pity onto herself. Woe's me for thee, unhappy proserpine. The quotation marks that surround this final line remind us that this is literally the only utterance to be found in the poem, and yet this is the one line that proserpine herself does not speak in her own guise. The rest is interior monologue that typically verges on dramatic monologue as it explores the fissures and dichotomies within Rossetti's world. It is therefore fitting that the poem appear within the picture space itself, for these convoluted thoughts belong to the subject herself, and not to a third person framing presence, not to a he describing, explaining, or interrogating a mysterious she. Now I'd like to end this evening by returning to the greatest of these paintings for poems or poems for pictures, the Blessed Damozel at Harvard. If you can move ahead on the left, please. Thank you. And instead of imposing my own thoughts on you, I want to make a few brief comments and then pose a few questions for you. 
consider it your homework assignment. You're all used to that. Consider it your homework assignment for the next time you enter the Fogg Museum and stand before this marvelous image on the second floor. The combination of poem and painting is unusual in at least four ways. It's the only poem that precedes the painting by many years. And the picture is thus clearly a response in some way to the poem itself. It is the only poem that is very lengthy. It's not a sonnet and therefore can be inscribed neither on the frame nor on the canvas itself. It is also a poem in which the blessed damosel speaks, the speaker describes her in the third person, and the speaker in parenthetical remarks recounts his own emotions in the first person. Finally, the painting itself is in two parts, and could I have the last on the right, please? a predella having been added below, with part of the frame dividing the two major figures. That's a terrible slide on the right, but it at least shows you what he looks like. Let me just add that Rossetti has inscribed four of the poem's 24 stanzas on the frame. That's fine. And some of you can probably see those four stanzas at the very bottom of the frame on the left. Which ones has he chosen? In what order has he placed them? To what do they correspond in the two parts of the painting, both physically and in terms of the narrative? And how does the predella function, this image of the earthbound lover staring towards the golden bar of heaven, a golden bar it is not just the bar on which the Blessed Damozel lays her hands, but literally the golden bar of the frame that separates him from her, separates the predella from the larger canvas. I have my own preliminary answers to each of these questions, but I'd be delighted to learn yours. Thank you very much. much. And thank you all for your indulgence. Next year the equipment will be ours. <laughs> I hope you'll all come and join the speaker for a drink in the first floor staff lounge in the Alderman Library. To get there, uh, follow the general drift.